invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn to Jeremiah 18. God's economy in the potter's house. Today we step into another new word from the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah. Another one that is quite well known. We, we think of uh, Jeremiah and we think of that, that warning that we looked at last week. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But we also perhaps think of the idea of the potter, of the potter's house. It's one of the concepts that, that finds its root in Jeremiah and in the prophecies of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 18 and Jeremiah 19. And we step into this new word of the Lord to the prophet uh, Jeremiah and thus to the nation. And, and we do so stepping into another timeless lesson which undergirds the operation of God in this world. To that end, as I write in my title, we're going to see elements of how God operates, God's economy rooted in an illustration that God gives from the potter's house. And we're going to see the potter in a, in a different way come into the, the picture again next week in Jeremiah 19. So let's dig in this evening to Jeremiah 18. The Bible says in verses 1 through 3, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise, and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, God speaks to Jeremiah in verse 1, and he tells him, Go down to the potter's house. And God says that when you go down to the potter's house, I will give you another message. So Jeremiah obeys. Uh, he goes down to the potter's house, and when he gets down to the potter's house, what he finds there is a potter working on the wheels. Now what we're speaking of here is the fabrication of pottery on a potter's wheel. Handmade pottery is created by taking a lump of clay, placing it in the center of a spinning wheel called a potter's wheel, and then it is uh, spun using your hands to carefully shape the clay into the vessel of choice. Uh, the, the skilled hand of the potter, they get their hands wet, they put some moisture on the clay, and then they begin to shape it, and as that wheel spins, they keep their hands in, in place, and that allows the pot to, if this is what you would desire, to create, uh, to, to become rather symmetric because the, the clay is moving over your hands as your hands are singularly positioned and then as they're moving. And so it causes the entirety of the, the, the circumference of the clay to receive effectively the same shape or, or the same figure. Throughout the process, any number of problems, however, can arise. Even as you look at and you watch master potters, if you've ever watched potters perhaps uh, online or if you've ever seen a, a program that, that shows pottery, you will generally at some point see some sort of problem come up. Perhaps that is that at first there's not quite enough water on the clay and so it's not shaping well, it's not molding well and you see the potter have to add more water. Uh, perhaps there's too much water and then the clay gets mushy and, and, and it can't hold its shape because it's just too moist and there has to be a process of wicking some of that water away, drying some of that water up. But one of the most common things you'll find is that as the clay is formed and as the potter is seeking to form the vessel, if he's doing anything even somewhat intricate, then the walls of that pot uh, are, are getting thinner and at some point perhaps there will become either an imperfection in the clay or an imperfection in the work of the hand of the potter and that clay will collapse. 
and you'll see that clay collapse and they'll go whoops and then you'll just see them kind of mush it together and start over again and it just kind of works its way back up and it's really amazing actually to see how quickly they can recover from that and get the clay back into uh, um, the shape that they were looking for and of course more intricate difficult designs bring about more opportunity for the clay to collapse. So Jeremiah walked into the potter's house and he's watching as this process of creating pottery was taking place. And Jeremiah saw something particular as he observed the process, which we read about in verse 4. The Bible says, And the vessel that he made, that would be the potter made, of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make it. So the potter had an idea in his mind as an artist of what he wanted this piece of pottery to look like. And as he was forming it, for whatever reason, the clay buckled, the clay was marred, the clay failed. Most likely it collapsed. That happens quite often in pottery. Most likely the, the vessel collapsed. And then Jeremiah watched as this vessel having collapsed, the potter then started to shape but again, started to attempt to do the same thing again. To, to, he has the image in his mind of what he wants this pot to be, and he is going to keep doing it until such time as he gets it right, until the, the, the piece of pottery is able to be what he wants it to be. The potter keeps working on the lump of clay, and this is what God wanted Jeremiah to see. So Jeremiah sees this vessel get marred in the hand of the potter and then get remade. Now God has a message for Jeremiah under the people based upon this experience in the potter's house. Verses 5 and 6, the Bible says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter? Saith the Lord, Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. The message by the Lord for the house of Israel is this, I can do with you what the potter is doing with this clay. You have been marred. You have collapsed under the weight of your own flaws. It's not the potter's fault in this case, right? Because God is the potter. You have failed. But I can make you again. I can make you anew. I have a vision for what I want you to be. And if you will yield yourself to me, I can shape you into it. I can do this with you too. Now, two particular messages exist here. First, being a clear statement that in the eyes of God, Israel has been marred, right? Israel has failed. God is effectively saying, although he doesn't come out and say it, he says it implicitly, you are marred. And this happens implicitly because Jeremiah saw the clay get marred and be remade, and God says, I can remake you. The fact that God's saying he, he can remake Israel means that they've been undone, right? So that's the first message. You are marred. You have failed. The second, of course, being this. I'm willing to restore you. I'm willing to remake you. I'm willing to shape you again. Let's just take a moment and, and, and dwell on that idea. Because it's beautiful. It's fantastic. Gives me hope that my cracks and my flaws and the things where I fall short, that there's mercy with the Lord. That God is willing to work on me. And He does work on me. Thank God for that. If I was God, I'd have given up on me a long time ago. But God hasn't. Thank God for that. Both elements are essential for Israel to hear at this time. 
and to understand. A person who does not think he has a problem will never submit himself to any sort of a solution. So it's essential that they understand that God saw them as marred, that they had failed. A man will never reach for the life raft if he doesn't think he's drowning, right? The nation of Israel was struggling with that first point. They were struggling even to believe that they had been marred. But if they can get there, if they can get to the point where they realize how far short they have fallen, then they're where they need to be because the message then is, I can remake you. There's mercy to be found. God is ready and willing to make them anew and to restore them to usefulness and to prosperity. But hasn't God already pronounced judgment? Huh? Yeah, he has already pronounced judgment. Well, what does that mean? And this is where God's message continues, and it's very important as well. In verses 7 and 8, the Bible says this, At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have pronounced evil, or pronounced, excuse me, turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. So we find here, and it's going to take place over the next several verses as well, an element of the operation of God's economy. That when God pronounces judgment upon a nation, he says, saying, I will destroy it. If the nation hears the pronouncement and turns from the evil that they are doing, if they recognize that they are on the wrong side of the Lord and they turn from that, that word repentance, then God will likewise repent himself of the evil that he thought to do unto them. God will turn from that. And this is a good moment to remember, as I just mentioned, what repentance is. Repentance in its most basic form, if you study it, and we're not going to trace through it this evening, but repentance in the Bible, it does not have intrinsically connected to it the idea of being sorry. When we think of the idea of repentance today, we connect it almost inextricably with the idea of feeling sorry about something or being sorry for something. But the idea of repentance as it actually relates to the to to the the word being used here and, and in the New Testament the same idea. Sorrow, sorrow can accompany it. Sorrow may often accompany repentance, but repentance itself is a mindset whereby one changes his mind in regard to a course of action, in regard to a way of thinking, and so he produces a different action within him as he changes his mind, as he changes his thinking. So God is saying here that if a nation repents, he will respond in return. That God will turn as well. That God will change his intent toward the nation if the nation changes their disposition toward him. And that is God's promise here. And this is how God has always operated. I'll show you this more clearly in a moment. But first, let's continue through the text because it's important for us to understand that the opposite of this is also true. Verses 9 and 10. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it. If it do evil in my sight that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. So God says, I reserve the right to go the opposite direction as well. If I promise to bless and establish a nation, to build and to plant a kingdom, and then that nation repents of its good and chooses rather to do evil in his sight, then the Lord will likewise repent of the good that he has done to them or that he has promised or intended to do to them. And so we see a system where God treats these nations in accordance with how these nations treat God's word. And notice he does say here concerning a nation. And that's 
important. It's important within the immediate context. And it's important that we understand the limits to this element of God's economy. We'll talk more about that later. So we see this system that's put in place. We'll come back to this in our application. Let's continue in the text. Verse 11. Now, therefore, go to speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I frame evil against you and devise a device against you. Return ye now everyone from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. So God's message to the men of Judah is simply this. I intend evil against you. And that means that you're going to, you're going down the wrong path. You are doing wrong. You are marred. The fact that you, that I intend evil against you is a clear indication that you have, that you are not right, that you are in the wrong here. So in consistency with my character, I am meaning to do evil against you. But if you return in my faithfulness, in consistency with my character, in consistency with how I operate, I will repent. I will restore you. So this is what God has laid out in front of them. Jeremiah sees the clay. It collapses. This is a message. Jeremiah uses this message as he stands, and he's at the potter's house here. He doesn't leave the potter's house. He's at the potter's house crying out this message. You are like this clay. You have collapsed. But God has this economy that he's put in place where if you are doing wrong and then you repent of what you are doing, God will repent of the evil that he has thought to do unto you. If you're doing right and God has sought to bless you and then you repent of the right that you're doing, you turn from that, then, then God will repent of the good that he sought to give unto you and he will bring evil. And, and God says, this is how I operate. Therefore, right now I'm framing evil against you, Judah, because you have done wrong. But if you repent, so too will I. We get the response of the nation in verse 12. And they said, there is no hope, but we will walk after our own devices. And we will everyone do the imagination of his evil heart. Their response, there is no hope. It's an interesting statement. Kind of startled me a little bit. No hope of what? Is it that they do not have faith in their capacity to repent? There's no hope that we can repent. I don't think so. I don't think that that's what they're saying here. There's no hope of our repentance. Seems more likely that what they are reflecting is a lack of faith that God would be faithful, that God would repent. In other words, when they say there is no hope, but rather we will walk in our own devices, we will rock, walk everyone in the imagination of our own heart. Notice what that word imagination means. Hardness, firmness, stubbornness. Their response was literally, our hearts are hard and they're going to stay that way. We are going to continue in the hardness of our hearts. We are not, it's not that we can't repent. I don't think that that's what they're saying here. I don't think they're saying there's no hope that we can repent. I think they're saying we won't repent because we don't believe that there's any hope in your message. We don't believe that, that, that there's, if, if God is going to judge us, then let's make it worth it. I think, that's what they're, I think that's what they're saying here. There is no hope. If we're doomed, there's no hope that God would repent, so we'll just enjoy the time that we have left. If we're going to go down, we might as well make it a barn burner. 
Now, I admit that that's a somewhat pessimistic way to view the text. It, it, it is perhaps that they're expressing their lack of hope in their own capacity to do well. But if they are, if, they're, if, they're, if, if when they say there is no hope, they're expressing no hope in their own capacity to do well or their own capacity to repent, what that would reflect is something that to this point I don't think we've seen in Judah throughout the entire book of Jeremiah, which is even the slightest measure of humility. Right? It takes at least a little bit of humility to hear the message of judgment and say, yes, I'm going to be judged, but I want to do right, but I don't think that there's enough hope that I can repent. I don't think there's enough hope that I can do well. I don't think there's enough hope that, that I can climb out of the abyss I've been put in. That would take a little bit of humility for them to say that. right? And we've not seen any humility in Judah, which is why I believe that what they're saying here is, there's no, we don't have any hope in God. We don't have any expectation. We don't have any hope in this message. So we're just going to burn the place down. If we're going to go down, we're going to go down in flames. If God's going to judge us, we might as well be as evil as we can and really give him a reason to do so. I think that's their message here. A very discouraging message for, our, for the prophet to hear, no doubt. A very discouraging message for me to relay to you this evening. The Lord responds to this in verses 13 and 14. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Ask ye now among the heathen, Who hath heard such things? The virgin of Israel hath done a very horrible thing. Will a man leave the snow of Lebanon, which cometh from the rock of the field? Or shall the cold flowing waters that come from another place be forsaken? God responds in the same manner that really I kind of feel like responding, which is, that's crazy. What Israel just said, who, is, who says such things? Like, who says that? God is declaring his mercy to them. The God, their God, the God of the covenant is saying, you are not right with me and I want to make you right. Who responds to that by saying, no thanks, we'll just go down our own path. There's no hope. We're just going to remain in the imagination of our own heart. Who does that? And he says, have you ever heard such thing among the heathen? Has any, has any pagan, heathen person heard some false decree from the stone that they're staring at? They've had a bad crop and, they, and the priest interprets the bad crop as though their God is angry at them. And what do all the heathen do? They slit their wrists and they go crazy trying to appease this God who they think might be angry at them because they had a bad drought, a, a, a bad growing season. They will go to the ends of the earth to appease that rock that's staring at them on their mantelpiece. And yet God says, here I am, the creator of the universe, telling you not only that you're in the wrong, but that I want to restore you. And you say, no, thank you. We don't believe you. God says, have you ever heard such a thing? And he, he calls them the virgin of Israel. He says, they have done a very horrible thing. And then God gives us an illustration to show how silly this is. He, he says, will a man leave the snow of Lebanon, which comes from the rock of the field? This is a bit of a difficult understand, uh, statement to understand on its own, but if we combine it with the next statement, or shall the cold 
flowing waters that come from another place be forsaken, then it perhaps makes a little bit of sense. Lebanon was in the heights, and they would get snow. That snow would melt, and it would produce wonderfully cool and fresh runoff that would flow through the valleys, and that would create fresh mountain water. Perhaps you've seen bottles of water, and they've got mountain peaks, and they say these, you know, this water comes from the mountain peaks as if, uh, you know, as if they're trying to sell you on the water because it's this, this fresh mountain peak water when, um, you know, it's probably tap water from somewhere, so, somewhere across the nation. But one way or another, the idea is God asking, who would not be content? Would, would, would someone leave the snow of Lebanon to just enjoy the rock of the field? Would someone leave those crisp, cool waters of that, the, the melt-off of the snow of Lebanon and, and just say, I think there's something better somewhere else and so forsake that which is so good for something that you can't even find, right? There's nothing better. Would you, and, and, and yet the grass is always greener type idea. God is saying, I am the snow of Lebanon. I am the melt-off. I am the cool, crisp water. I am the refreshment. And you're looking at that and saying, no, no, we're, we're going to find better outside of God. God says, who does that? It's a very horrible thing that the virgin of Israel hath done. Of course, him speaking of Israel as his betrothed there. Verses 15 through 17, God says, Because my people hath forgotten me, they have burned incense to vanity, and they have caused them to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths, to walk in paths in a way not cast up, to make their land desolate and a perpetual hissing. Everyone that passeth thereby shall be astonished and wag his head. I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. So because they have forgotten the Lord, God says, they burned incense to vanity, he says, to emptiness. That would be false gods, naturally. Gods which are no gods, which has caused many to fall from the path of righteousness. Because when God cried, they ignored him. They walked in the paths, uh, walked away from the paths of righteousness. They walked in a way that was not proven to make their land desolate and a perpetual hissing. The idea of hissing there, like we've said before, it's kind of the idea that we would have in our culture where someone comes by and, right? That sort of an idea. A uh, hissing would have been that sort of an idea in their culture. It was a sign of shame, it was a sign of despair. He says, everyone that passes by will thus hiss, be astonished, wag their head at what I'm going to do to you. And then in the day of calamity, in the day when I scatter you and you cry out to me, you're not going to find my face there. You're going to find my back. I'm going to turn my back to you in that day when you finally do cry out to me because I've had enough. You have forsaken me. I'm going to forsake you. How would the nation respond to such a message? Well, much to our dismay, they respond exactly how we would expect. Verse 18. Then said they, Come and let us devise devices against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish 
from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor word from the prophet. Come and let us smite him with the tongue and let us not give heed to any of his words. So their response is, let's kill the messenger. Jeremiah is the problem here. Let us do evil to Jeremiah. This is a natural and quite common response of those who have no truth to stand on. When the pool of a person's reasons to refute some truth dry up, when they have nothing left in the well with which to pull from in order to refute the truth that somebody is speaking, all they have left is to turn their anger against the truth teller, to try to silence the one who's telling the truth. That's all they've got left. We see this everywhere in culture today. Because Christians believe the Bible, because we are those that live by the truths of God's word and we tell these truths to others, we as believers are slowly becoming the enemy of a society that has wholesale rejected the truths of God's word. And if they can't refute the truths, which they can't, then they will silence the messengers. Now remember that truth is violence in such a culture. Truth is abhorrent in a culture that is built upon lies. And we see this very thing here. Jeremiah has become the enemy, not because he has done anything treasonous, not because he has done anything seditious, not because he has gone behind his his nation's back and invited Babylon in or, or told them the combination lock to the gate of Jerusalem. He hasn't done any of those things. He has simply told the nation the truth. And they say, Let's devise devices against Jeremiah. Let's shut this guy up. The people say this to him. They say, The law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor word from the prophet. In other words, they say, Forget Jeremiah. We're going to listen to our priests, to our prophets. We are going to listen to our counselors. They're right. Jeremiah's wrong. Jeremiah is thus engaged in a form of hate speech. That needs to be silenced because all he's doing is fear-mongering, causing people to feel bad about themselves, making people wonder if they're on the right path. But, but the, the counsel won't depart from the wise, but the law shall not, deper- the, shall not perish from the priest, but the word shall not perish from the prophet. So they say, let us smite him with the tongue. And let us not give heed to any of his words. Let us mock him. Let us scorn him. Let us shout him down. Let us do everything we can to keep him silent, to keep him down, and then ignore him. Not give heed to anything he says. This has been man's response to the guilt of sin ever since the beginning. We read in 1 John 3, verses 11 through 13, For this is the message that ye have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was that wicked one and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. Cain killed Abel, not because... um, Excuse me, because his own works were evil... And his brother's works were righteous. Cain killed Abel because Abel made him feel guilty, because Abel revealed to him his own sin, because Abel stood in contrast to his rebellion. And that is what made Cain hate Abel. Because Cain did evil and Abel did well. We often think people dislike you because you do wrong. 
Well, in a properly adjusted society, those that do wrong are the ones upon whom the society, the government in particular, does evil. But in a backward society, in a society of lies, the one who does right is the one that's considered evil because he is causing everyone else to feel bad. He is, he is shining a light upon their sin. Going all the way back to the second generation of humanity, the first children of the fallen race, the unrighteous man had hatred in his heart for the testimony of the righteous man. And this hate has driven him to evil and to violence again and again. And it should be no wonder that it continued in Jeremiah's day that they sought to silence Jeremiah. They sought to silence the truth of the messenger when they could not refute the message. And so we do not marvel that the nation hated Jeremiah because the nation's deeds were evil and they loved that evil. And we do not marvel when we we read that the nation hated Jesus because that nation's deeds were evil and they loved evil. And we do not marvel when the darkness of this world hates the followers of Jesus because their deeds are evil and the followers of Jesus are doing right because they love that evil. To this, Jeremiah responds, and we'll finish the chapter in verses 19 through 23. Jeremiah says this, Give heed to me, O Lord, and hearken to the voice of them that contend with me. Shall evil be recompensed for good? For they have digged a pit for my soul. Remember that I stood before thee to speak good for them and to turn away thy wrath from them. Remember, God, that I am here trying to, keep, trying to spare them from your wrath. Therefore, deliver up their children to the famine and pour out their blood by force of the sword and let their wives be bereaved of their children and be widows and let their men be put to death. Let their young men be slain by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from the houses when thou shalt bring a troop suddenly upon them, for they have digged a pit to take me and hid snares for my feet. Yet, Lord, thou knowest all their counsel against me to slay me. Forgive not their iniquity, neither blot out their sin from thy sight, but let them be overthrown before thee. Deal thus with them in the time of thine anger. So Jeremiah responds with a call for the Lord to hear the evil of those that speak against him. And notice what he does, as we've seen time and time again. Jeremiah yields this to the Lord. And he says, Lord, in the time of your anger, avenge me. I'm not avenging myself. I'm doing what you've told me to do. And to remember, Lord, that I'm doing this for their good. I'm seeking to turn away your wrath from them. But they will not listen. And so, God, in the day that you avenge, now they are coming after me. Now they are attacking me personally. And God, you're, you're seeing this, right? You're seeing what they do against me for your sake. You're seeing what they do against me for your name. And, and so there is a line that is drawn here where in one sense, Jeremiah is, at, is, is comforting himself with the fact that the Lord will avenge him. But take careful note that he is not living out that vengeance himself. He's saying, Lord, you will avenge. And not only that, but right here at the end, he says, deal thus with them in the time of thine anger. In your time, when it is your time to judge, you will judge them. And they are heaping to themselves more wood for the fire of their judgment as they persecute Jeremiah. 
And that's what Jeremiah is saying here. And thus comforting his heart in a sense, calling upon the Lord to remember him for good, to remember that he stood before the Lord, that he asked God for mercy for them. And so he says, don't forgive their sin. Don't blot out their transgressions. An interesting contrast here, though, is there not? That Jeremiah is both advocating for their best as well as asking the Lord to not forget the wrongs that they've done against him. And thus we come to the end of the chapter. Two applications that I'd like to draw to your attention this evening. And they both relate to the characteristics of God's economy as we've talked about them. When God says, those that do well, uh, when, I, when I pronounce a blessing upon you, if you turn from that, I will curse you. And then conversely, those that do evil, uh, and I pronounce a curse upon you, if you do well and repent, then I will repent of the evil I've done to you. And we see this economy that, that, that is in place, these characteristics of our Lord. And I want to talk about those characteristics directly as it relates to us as believers. I'm not going to talk about it on the national level because, to be quite honest, I don't know how that plays out. The question in, in one's mind, is this still how God interacts with nations today? I think that is quite possible, but I'm not quite sure. I haven't settled in my own heart and mind, nor do I have enough doctrine to undergird whether or not we might see that same relationship that, that we would see at that time when God was working through the national covenant, when God was working on this national level to show himself. We do see it in nations that are not Israel, right? We see it in Jonah's day with Assyria. We see an Assyrian nation who is evil and violent, and Jonah goes to them reluctantly and says, in 40 days, the Lord is going to destroy your nation. He doesn't even say repent. He never offers a message of repentance. He just comes and says, in 40 days, you all are toast. And then they repent in sackcloth and ashes. They put, they put ashes on their cows, right? They repent from the greatest even to the least. And God diverts his judgment. And Jonah's angry about this. And God says, why would I not do this? This is how I operate. And so I can see a reason why we can argue it from a national level, but I'm not confident enough or comfortable enough to bring that application in a teaching way. I would encourage you to think about that, to think about how the Lord might operate among nations today, to think about what that might mean characteristically for the United States, to think about ways that that might line up with what we see historically, to see what, uh, about ways that that might not line up historically, and then I'll leave that to you and your conscience and your studies. But I want to talk about it as it relates to the individual believer today. We see that God says specifically to the people of this nation, if you do right, I will bless you. If you don't, I will curse you. And the question is, how, does the, the, how do these characteristics of God relate first to salvation? by grace. And this is where I want to uh, strongly highlight the limitation of this principle. God said today, those who, seeing that they are under judgment, repent and come to me, I will repent of the evil which I thought to do to him. Now that makes perfect sense from the standpoint of grace, right? 
If a person recognizing that they are on the wrong side of God, if that they are judged, as the Bible says in John 16, that the Holy Spirit convicts men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness uh, because I go unto the Father and of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. When a person recognizes that they have failed to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, that Jesus is righteous and that judgment is reserved for those who will not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who are living in that sin, the sin of unbelief, that, that they recognize that they believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and they are saved. So that principle um, makes sense to us from that perspective. But what about the other way around? God said today, those who being blessed by me repent of their good and choose evil, I will repent of the good and I will judge them. Does this mean that a man coming to God recognizing his state, believing on the Lord, receiving salvation of the Lord. If instead he chooses to do evil, then God will repent of the salvation which he gave and instead curse him. It does not mean this. And this is where we must see the limitation of this principle, the context within which God is presenting this, the context within which God always presents this. The context within which God always presents this is within the context of blessing and cursing, not in the context of personal standing with the Lord. Not in the context relationally, it's in the context of blessing and cursing. We need to see that. You will not find this principle ever applied outside of this idea of blessing and cursing. Let me remind you of this very distinctly. God is not talking to the nation about how he is dealing with them on a personal spiritual salvation level here. He is speaking to the nation about how he is dealing with them in relation to the covenant that he has made with them that if they obey, he will bless them and if they disobey, he will curse them. And he's reminding them that just because you had a good year last year doesn't mean you can rest on those laurels. Doesn't mean that because you did good last year, therefore I blessed you, that that means you can do evil this year and I'm going to just keep blessing you. You stop doing good, I stop doing good. You start doing evil, I start doing evil. This is what God promised in the covenant, right? So there's nothing inconsistent. But if we try to bring this to salvation, it breaks down very quickly because nowhere in the Bible does God relate this concept to salvation. Nowhere in the Bible does God relate this concept to a man's personal relationship and spiritual standing with him on a level of salvation. And we need to understand the difference. We need to understand just how little eternal salvation has to do with you and your actions. Salvation is by grace through faith, right? And so we establish in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We memorized that two months ago. Salvation has nothing to do with you and everything to do with what Jesus has done for you. Try to translate that principle into salvation, and the only way you can translate it in is simply this. If God is operating on this principle, that principle stops at Jesus because Jesus took it all. And to that point, anyone under the blood of Jesus is right with God. And so it is not about, if we want to translate this principle at all into salvation, then it only translates to the extent that are you in Christ or are you not in Christ? It does not translate into the things you do and don't do because that has nothing to do with whether you go to heaven or not. Right? 
It has nothing to do with whether you go to heaven or not. And because what you do and don't do has nothing to do with whether you go to heaven. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Because that is the economy that God has set up. It, 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 it has nothing to do with the way we live our lives on a daily basis, whether or not we go to heaven or not. Jesus bore that on the cross for us. The Bible says that we are all sinners, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have fallen short of God's perfection. We have fallen short of God's glory. And because God is just, all those who have sinned must be separated from Him eternally, right? This is the gospel. This is what we know about God's economy. This eternal separation takes the form of eternal punishment in conscious torment in the lake of fire. Now, it's important as it relates to the message tonight that we understand that there is no amount of goodness, no amount of effort, no amount of worthiness within me that can undo the debt that I owe to God, right? I can't just earn my way into good standing with Him and then He blesses me with eternal salvation. It doesn't work that way because God is just. No matter how much good I do this year, if I did bad last year, God must give me the punishment of my sin. And that's eternity in the lake of fire. This is God's economy. This is justice. But God so loved the world, right? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God wasn't willing that any man should perish, but that all men should come to repentance. So God devised a way, as we've talked about so many times, to be both just and to justify the ungodly. God devised a way to satisfy His justice and His wrath against sin, which simultaneously while simultaneously giving man a chance to be saved from that punishment and that separation. And this way is through Jesus Christ. So we know the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. This is the simple gospel, right? that we are sinners, that Jesus Christ died for our sin. And on that cross, God poured out all his wrath upon sin and all of his justice against sin on Jesus. And on that day, on the day of Jesus's death, the shed blood of Jesus Christ satisfied God's justice. God's justice was appeased. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also the sins of the entire world. 1 John 2, 2. And we know that Jesus' sacrifice satisfied God's wrath and God's justice because God raised him from the dead. The, re the, the resurrection's essential nature is in part that it validates Jesus' ministry, demonstrating the Father's approval and acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice, declaring that sin and death had no more power over the only begotten Son of God. And then God set a standard that whosoever will acknowledge that God has done this thing by faith, acknowledge their incapacity to get to God themselves, acknowledge that they, all, that they rest under the wrath of God because of their own sinful choices, and will yield their whole truth, their whole heart, excuse me, to the truth, that Jesus Christ has done for them what they cannot do for themselves, what they never could do for themselves, that Jesus Christ is our salvation, 
that Jesus died, he, he was buried, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and he did so for our salvation, for our justification. They will be saved. Going back to Ephesians, if we go backwards just a little bit, we considered a couple of these verses last week. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. This is salvation, correct? This is God's plan, correct? And we must understand as we study this reality that it has nothing to do with what God is talking about in Jeremiah 18. And to whatever extent God's economy does extend to it, it was the work was finished. The work was satisfied in Christ. We must understand that two things can be true at once. That God can deal with man according to his moral obedience and disobedience in a physical context for blessing and cursing while simultaneously acknowledging that no amount of moral obedience is sufficient to earn remission of sins. Because that is what the Bible says. No amount of moral obedience is going to bring about God conferring upon me salvation. And thank God for that. Because none of us can live up to that standard. That's what the law existed to prove. For those of you who have been in our Hebrews in Sunday school. Unless we think this is a new concept unknown to the people of that day, we need to understand that the system was the same even then. Individual sins of the people were not overlooked by God in that day. They were dealt with by the shedding of blood in the continual offering of lambs on the altar. That, that was an entirely different context from what God is saying in Jeremiah 18, right? God is not saying, bring your lambs to the altar and all will be well, is he? Nor is God speaking here of the faith that brings about justification going all the way back to Abraham. God is saying, you as a nation have failed. You as a nation are divided from me and you as a nation must suffer the consequences. The only difference being that their lamb was temporal, of course. Insufficient to atone, only to cover. But none of these concepts are brought up even in relation to the Old Testament sacrificial system, because that's not what God was speaking of here. God was not speaking, nor has he ever spoken of eternal salvation in the context of human merit, not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. Salvation has always been an extension of God's grace as a response to man's faith, and never an extension of God's rewards in a response to man's works. But God is speaking of merit here, is he not? Do well, and I will bless you. Repent, and I will bless you. Realign yourself with me, and I will bless you. Then fall away from that alignment, and I will curse you. We are talking about a system here of alignment, of doing good and of doing evil. And this is a lesson about God's character and dealings toward man, about the nature of man's relationship to it, that has nothing to do with our relationship to God as it relates to eternal salvation, but does find some measure of parallel in the way in which we live our Christian life. And so our second point this evening, 
How do these characteristics relate to life under grace? Do these principles relate to us at all? Is there anything about God's warning here about doing well and the Lord will bless and then if you turn, then the Lord will repent of his blessing and of doing uh, um, evil and the Lord will, will um, curse and then of doing right and the Lord will repent of the cursing that, that we can find any relation to within the Christian life? Well, there is. And that's where we'll spend the rest of our time today. God is speaking in Jeremiah 18 specifically to a nation. And again, I remind you that the context in Jeremiah 18, the context that we see in Jonah, these contexts relate to nations. And the extent to which this can carry over into the individual life uh, is already semi-suspect. But... Within that unique relationship, one in which he had promised to bless the nation of Israel and to curse the nation of Israel, uh, we can see characteristics that go beyond just God's relationship to Israel. In fact, what God described in Jeremiah 18 is perhaps best understood scripturally, as I mentioned, through the account of the Assyrians and Jonah. But there is a uniqueness to a relationship with the true and living God based upon the fact that we who have God's Holy Spirit indwelling, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior by grace through faith, we read and we know God's Word more knowledgeable and therefore we are more accountable. There is a real principle. The Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. And the disposition of the Lord toward his children, either to bless us or to chasten us, is dependent upon our obedience in much the same way that the nation's blessing in this covenantal level in Jeremiah 18 was dependent upon theirs. To this end, Paul writes something in in 1 Corinthians 10, which I think helps us. He writes in verses 1 through 12, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud... And all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted, neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them, For in samples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. So Paul speaks of the days of the Exodus, recounting Exodus chapters 13 through 17, along with a smattering of numbers in there with various accounts, the brazen serpent and such. And Paul tells us that these things are not simply told unto us so that we can have interesting stories but rather they teach us lessons. 
they teach us that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted, not be idolaters as they were idolaters, not commit fornication as they committed fornication, not to tempt Christ as they tempted Christ, not to murmur against our authorities as they murmured against their authorities. And the warning is thus given. He says, therefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. But notice Paul began this text by calling the readers brethren. There's nothing in this text that ever implies that these are unbelievers. And if we take this lesson and we just willy-nilly extract it, we could say, once again, you can lose your salvation, right? Except that salvation has nothing to do with that stuff. Salvation has everything to do with what Jesus already did for me. And so what are we talking about here? It's a warning that the nation through their sin was overthrown. Individuals within that nation were overthrown by their lust and by their, by, by their fornication, by their idolatry and by tempting Christ. Paul would go on in this context to say you cannot be both partakers of the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. It's a warning about becoming ineffective believers. It's a warning about putting ourselves on the wrong side of God. As we, if we ignore the principles of God's word and we allow the principles of this world to infiltrate the manner in which we live our lives. That though we all as believers are under the cloud and have passed through the sea and have been baptized with the same baptism, that though we all eat the, the same spiritual uh, uh, meat and we drink that spiritual drink, the drink of communion, yet with many, the Bible says, the Lord was not pleased. And Paul says, let this be a warning to you, lest you, thinking you stand, fall. The warning is not that you might lose your salvation, but the warning is that even among those that are saved by grace through faith, if we persist in choices with, which exist contrary to the state of the word of the Lord, there are and indeed there must be consequences. And if we repent of the evil, the Lord is faithful to forgive. But if we persist in the evil or we, we repent of the good that we've been doing, we need to understand that we do so at the expense of the Lord's blessing, at the risk of our spiritual well-being. That though you might end up in heaven, your life might lack the essential characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, the fullness of joy, the answers of prayer, the faithful provision through your rebellion and the Lord's necessary chastening. That though you are saved, yet so as by fire perhaps, you will have no rewards to show for it on the other side of eternity because you lived your life in a manner of selfishness and sin. And this is the warning that I would like for us to take with us this evening. This is the reminder that as God reminded the nation through the covenant that he had given to them that the nation that does well will be blessed and if they stop doing well, God will repent of the blessing and he will curse them and the nation that does evil, God will judge and if they, do, if they repent of the evil, then God will repent of the evil that he thought to do unto them and will turn from that and will bless them. So too, grace... Grace does not give us a license to sin. Grace does not give us the means by which to walk willy-nilly through this life and every time we do something wrong God, and, and God gets uh, upset, we can just flash our card and say, God, I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm exempt. doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way in this life. It does not work that way in rewards in the life to come. 
let us take with us a reminder that what we do in this life really does matter. And it matters not only because if we fall short of perfection in ourselves, it, 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 it does not matter because of the fear that if we fall short of perfection, we fall short of heaven, because that's not what the Bible teaches. Those that fall short of heaven are those who have fallen short of belief on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. But what the Bible does warn is that the way that this life is lived by the believer matters. It matters for the manner in which we enter into eternity. These things depend upon our disposition toward the Lord. These things depend upon whether or not we are living our lives under a spirit of repentance for sin and of obedient faith. So let us take heed, lest thinking that we stand, we instead fall. And Jeremiah 18 allows us to have a little bit of this reminder. Maybe not so much in the national sense, certainly not in, in the sense of the church. The church is under a different covenant. But as it relates to the reminders of the Word of God and our spiritual walk, an example of God who is forming each of us into a vessel. We are each a pot, a piece of clay in the, in the potter's hands, and He is forming us. And as He forms us, we can be marred in the hands of the potter. Not because the potter failed, but we can fail, can't we? But what happens when we fail? We need to remember that God is willing to make it again another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make it. That God is continuing to forge us into what He would have us to be. That we sometimes hinder His progress on that. But God is willing. We also see a warning that when the vessel hardens itself, God is willing to tear that vessel down so that then God can attempt to build it up again in a manner that fits the house of the Lord. To this end, Paul tells Timothy this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. Paul says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having the seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. This is the seal. The Lord knows that are his. And those that name the name of Christ, it's your privilege to depart from iniquity. But in a great house, Paul says, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and of earth, some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself of these, that would be the dishonor, right? He shall be a vessel unto honor. Excuse me, not, not if a man purge himself of the vessels of dishonor. If a man purge himself from iniquities, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. We may all exist in Christ, in the, in the potter's house, but not all of us will be vessels of honor. If we depart from sin, if we purge ourselves of iniquity, the potter will not have to keep tearing us down to build us up again. And then he can take the time to form us into a vessel of honor that can be fit for the master's use. Meat for the master's use, prepared unto every good work. But if we keep going down the path of our own choices, allowing ourselves to, to set the, 
to set the agenda and so continually collapsing under the weight of our own wrong choices, then that forming process has to be redone, reforged again and again and again and we stay in perpetual spiritual infancy. Let's allow the potter to do his work. And that's the question this evening. How are you doing tonight? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you walking in that relationship? Have you recognized that you have fallen short of the glory of God and that Jesus alone can do for you what you cannot do for yourself? And then for we, most of us who are believers, are you allowing God to form you as He desires to or are you continually collapsing under the weight of your own selfish choices? So He has to form you again. What kind of vessel are you Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.